Welcome once again to Devotional. This is Pastor Ariel and we are on a brand new quarter, Oneness in Christ. This is for Tuesday, October the 2nd. This is lesson number four. So we are now moving right along in this lesson. Um, we've gone from the heartache that took place uh, between Cain and Abel to now the Tower of Babel. And it made me think again of that bumper sticker, Coexist. It, it says that, you know, that, that people try to make this tower to keep everybody together so that they would not disperse upon the earth. But it backfired. And it, it actually brought division and confusion. God was trying to highlight how the, the effort of humanity in trying to unite uh, with each other while at the same time rebelling against him will bring a tremendous destruction. It was in separating them that God could preserve human existence. And you have to understand that by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, a humanity which spoke one language, their thoughts and intents of their hearts have become evil continually. And because of their being unified by language and culture, etc., their their putrefication just spread like a cancer with no no restraints and uh, the bible says that three times that they were bent upon self-destruction they, they have uh, self-destroyed themselves they're bent on, on corrupting themselves shahat is the hebrew word for corruption and corruption means decay that leads inevitably to death and humanity was self-inflicting that and it spread fast so when God uh, brings about the different languages in the Tower of Babel, it's an act of mercy. It's, I mean, I try to explain to people, you know, with things that are more familiar with, everyday things. And for me, it was when you see, a, you know, you have a bunch of bananas in your tabletop, and one of them begins to rot, and you begin to see all these little flies, um, you know, going around it, on the gnats. You take that banana, you throw it in the trash, because if you leave it there, it will spoil the rest of the other bananas uh, a lot quicker than they would have. And so that's what God was doing, separating the bananas, separating the human race, because some of the individuals were quickly becoming corrupted again. This is post the flood. And so God wanted to somehow delay the way that the cancer of sin spread on humanity. At that point, the oneness that they could experience apart from God backfired because that just meant that the cancer would spread faster. So God tried to bring fragmentation within humanity to try to preserve a remnant, a group of people that would not get corrupted, would not get it, it destroyed inwardly through the effects of this fast-spreading sin through human culture and language and ideology, of course, theology. So this idea of coexistence is a wonderful thought, but an impossibility outside of a supernatural intervention, the cross of God transforming me in being able to love the way He does, self-sacrificially. So, you know, we have polytheism and, you know, we have to be gentle, we have to be cautious. Well, we're talking about the, the teachings, not individuals. Um, I have friends that were Hindus and in high school, and I had friends that were Muslims in high school, and in college I had friends that were Jews as well. 
wonderful individuals. Um, what I'm referring to is simply the theology behind these different um, religious groups, uh, which I belong to Christianity. Um, there's something you know interesting. We we Christians you know have this tension that might frustrate polytheists and maybe frustrate monotheists, individuals that believe in one God, monotheist, individuals that believe in many gods, polytheists. They may think that Christians speak out of both sides of the mouth because we will agree with the Jews and the Muslims when we say that we believe in one God. But then we will agree, the polythe polytheistic individuals will think we agree with them when we believe in that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are, are gods. All three are gods. But we will not say all three are gods. We will actually say it correctly, all three are God. And that's where the, the sticky part comes. Polytheist, polytheisms with uh, people that believe in polytheism would say, hold up a second, you're using the wrong term here. You're saying God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I count three, but then you're saying they're God. Shouldn't there be an S at the end? And the Christian would say no. And then the monotheist would say, hold up a second, you're, you're, I agree with the God part without the S, but you're saying that there are three persons? I thought you said there was one. And even some Christians, you know, are left with their heads scratching, thinking, um, how does that work? How is this possible? Well, the Bible doesn't expect us to understand everything about God, but this part is, I think, given a wonderful, easy, practical, visible, common, uh, universal example. Um, Number one, I'm going to point to Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10, in the very heart of the law of God. I believe God helps us understand what he meant or what the Bible means, the way Christians, we, we come to understand the revelation of God, that we have three persons that compose, that make up this unit, unifying the Godhead, this, this being of, of God. There's three persons but all three together are God. Not gods, but God. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 10, you may be familiar with this. This is a commandment about the Sabbath. And I'm going to skip to verse 10. But it says, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, listen carefully, in it, in the Sabbath, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter and then it goes into your male servants, animals, and strangers. But I'm going to focus on the family nucleus here. You, nor your son, nor your daughter. There's three individuals in the singular. You, nor your son, nor your daughter. And I'm going to ask you, who is God talking to here? When he says you, obviously your daughter, your son, who's you? Because it's singular. It's at the mother. Or is it the father? And some of us may be tempted to say, well, it's the father, of course. He's the leader of the home, the priest of the home, and the head of the household. Uh, so the mother doesn't count? I think not, because in the fifth commandment, when God says honor, he doesn't say honor your father and maybe your mom. He doesn't put the mom second rate. He says honor your father and mother. He mentions both. So to say that God you know, has deference and only when he says you, it, it only implies the, the man. 
I, I believe that God is when in the Sabbath, because it's the highlight of the commandment of creation, He's letting telling us if you want to understand why I'm using you singular, it's not that I skipped the mom or that I skipped the dad. I am speaking to both of them. Because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God says that a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. You want to understand how is it that God can have three persons and yet be one? God says, look at marriage before sin. The man and the woman were to experience such oneness because they were made in the image of God that though they would say our and us, they could also say me and I. They could use singular words and yet be speaking to both. Because in the fourth commandment, God is speaking to both of them, yet uses a singular word. So this is powerful. Because it, it brings to light something about, you know, being made in the image of God. And also the principle of that, by beholding, by worshiping, you become what you worship. I become what I worship. And polytheism, it, it, in essence, it worships gods that, yes, are many, are multiple, and yet, within the polytheistic view of the deities, these deities fight against one another, sometimes are antagonistic against one another. Polytheism cannot have their hundreds, thousands, or millions of God make the declaration, we are one. Yet Jesus does. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I and the Father are one. Yet, he's down in earth, the Father is in heaven. Just like I am right now recording in my office, but my wife is downstairs doing the dishes. She's downstairs, I'm up here, but we are one. Well, we can be. The potential is there by the grace of God through the cross of Jesus. And then we look at monotheism. Monotheism, strictly speaking, is God, that's it. One. One God. And for uh, from Islam is Allah, for Judaism is Adonai. You know, this is a sacred name. You cannot uh, try to pronounce the tetragrammatron, those four letters, the Y H W H. Um, you should try to pronounce that. It's disrespectful. Why did God is one? Um, that means that God is lonely. That you know, because He is eternal from eternity past. If you rewind the clock far back enough before humans were angels, at least that's how the Bible seems to put it. Um, so you rewind the clock and we don't know how long how the angels had been around, but they were not always around because they're created beings, meaning they had a beginning. God is the only eternal one that has no beginning and no end. So there was a point in the history of the universe in which the only being according to monotheism was God. Now, if, if um, Muslims are going to embrace Torah, the book of Genesis, Moses, who's held in high regards as a major prophet that wrote authoritatively, as well as Jews that also hold Moses in high regards um, as far as his authoritative books, both, both Pharisees and Sadducees could agree on the first five books of the Bible, at least, the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch says that God made man in his image. 
And then in chapter 2, it says that God said, It is not good for man to be alone. We made him like us. And because we made him like us, it's not good for him to be alone. And yet, God, in the monotheistic worldview, was alone at one time, was lonely. That, to me, is the consistency of how Christianity has come to understand God. The revelation that we have of God from Jesus brings unity, a harmony to the rest of the scripture. And it brings consistency. God would not make a being in his own image and make him one. He would make two and from the two would bring oneness. Just like there's oneness in God. Now, we've gone quite deep in theology. Um, you know, we, we have <laughs> tried to grapple with this oneness of God uh, as revealed in, in the Godhead and how we miss it. The, the people building the Tower of Babel missed it. They thought we can become one simply by human effort, and it doesn't work that way. Even through civil legislation. You know, during the 60s, the civil rights movements, um, Martin Luther King Jr. and many others fought hard for equality, for oneness in our society. This is 2018. You know what has been happening these past couple of years between African Americans and Caucasians and Hispanics and Asians? And we would like to think we made progress, but we find ourselves that we have not moved an inch forward. Yes, for sure there are individuals that still sacrifice themselves and invest lots of energy and lots of time in, in seeking for that oneness, but we still have, I think, just as many individuals comfortable with the division outside the church and unfortunately, heartbreakingly, even inside the church. What God do you worship? What kind of a God are you worshiping? And I'm talking specifically to Christians. A, a Christian that worships a God and is comfortable with segregation needs to ask himself, who am I worshiping? What kind of a God am I worshiping? Because the Bible, as far as Christianity is concerned, will challenge you, will challenge you and you and I, our sinful fallen nature will challenge it because it will point out the fact that if I am comfortable with a fragmented church, with a racially divided, segregated conferences and segregated divisions, or however you want to word it, if I'm comfortable with that kind of a policy, if that is not um, embarrassing, if that is not abhorrent, if that is not something that should have been invested a lot of energy these past couple of years, decades, to have been undone, should have been undone during the civil rights movement. And I'm speaking specifically to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the church that I love, the church that I am a pastor in, um, to both of those that belong to the regional conferences and the state conference, however you want to word it. It is, I think, um, it, it backfires on us. It's un, it undoes what we try to do and be as far as our mission, when we are comfortable with our segregated conferences, we shouldn't be. If there's going to be, if we're going to be presenting a God of oneness, how can we do it this way? 
How can we preach the everlasting gospel to every tribe, tongue, and people in a segregated way? At least here in North America. There's a lot of things to think about, a lot of things for us to pray about for our church. I love my church. I love it and I'm confident because I believe God is leading this church. And I believe that maybe through this Sabbath school and through the many people studying it worldwide, God will bring a conviction and a desire to undo these walls that we have created of policies and institution and ask God for the wisdom to know how to make one out of us, bring that oneness that exists in his heart. Because Jesus says that our mission is contingent upon that oneness. It is what will bring belief to the unbelievers that he exists, that he sent Jesus, and that he has sent us. 